Meditation is a language of silence. In this journey, we are encouraged again and again to let go of our words and our concepts. We are encouraged to let go of our definitions and our descriptions because it's clear that all of the images and all of the judgments and all of the knowings that we possess serve to clutter up silence. And silence here again and again, that it is silence that is the source of wisdom, the source of compassion, and the home of realization. We're encouraged in this journey not to linger anywhere or with anything, not to dwell upon anything, so that a profound and immense silence can be revealed to us. Every aspect of this teaching essentially informs us that the words and the concepts that we so at times desperately hold on to can really never be a true description of anything at all. That the words and the descriptions we experience so often in our minds are like reflections of the moon on the water. And to look only at the reflection is really never to see the moon. And the words and the descriptions that fill our consciousness essentially lead us to mistake the unreal for the real so that we become lost through those words in our belief systems, in our opinions, and in our prejudices. And of course, every time we are lost in our belief systems, our prejudices, we're also lost in limited ways of seeing ourselves seeing the world around us. And meditation is an invitation. It's an invitation to immerse ourselves in silence. Not only the silence of the spoken word, but also to immerse ourselves in the silence of not knowing, of not holding on to anything at all. And we are told that to do this, to immerse, immerse ourselves totally in this silence, that a universe of endless possibilities will open to us. That we will come to know a quality of freedom that is not dependent upon anything and that is not conditioned by anything. That we will come to know a way of being that is filled with a profound joy and peace. And then, this openness of not knowing is called the beginner's mind. As Suzuki Roshi said about it, our original mind includes everything in itself. It is always rich and sufficient in itself. You should not lose your self-sufficient state of mind. This does not mean a closed mind, but actually an empty mind and a ready mind. If your mind is empty, it is always ready, ready for anything. It is open to everything. 
In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. The invitation to silence that we're exposed to on a retreat, it's an invitation that's not always easy for us to embrace. Because words serve a purpose for us. Words do represent to us safety. They offer to us the familiar. They offer to us the known. When we come into the verbal silence of a retreat, we often think that we're going to welcome this verbal silence with a great sense of relief. Because we can drop in the verbal silence of a retreat, we can drop the burden of asserting who we are on the world. We don't, we're no longer obliged in this verbal silence to make a wonderful impression upon anyone. We don't have to be a sparkling personality. We don't have to be filled with profound wisdom. We don't have to be, it seems, anything for anyone else. We don't have to earn anyone's admiration. And we don't have to worry, supposedly, about anyone's disapproval either. And it would be logical, of course, to assume then that the, the verbal t- silence of a retreat would be greeted with a certain amount of joy. Of course, our reality of that experience is often very different. The verbal silence of a retreat provides each one of us with our own personal hall of mirrors. You know, you've probably gone into fairs where they have these mirror rooms. You know, and in some mirrors you're fat and squat. Other mirrors you're tall and skinny. Some mirrors are enormous. Other mirrors you're all weird and ugly. The silence of a retreat, essentially, is that hall of mirrors for us? (laughs) We're not always flattered by what we see in it. We see in that hall of mirrors at times how much we actually do rely upon the affirmation and the other approval of other people. Sometimes we see how much we rely upon being able to assert our credentials in the world. We appreciate and we're aware of how many thoughts and judgments we have about other people here on the retreat. And it's logical to assume that other people's minds are also working in exactly the same way. But we have no way to test this. We don't know. We don't know what anybody thinks about us. And so we're left just with the mirror. And we see what happens in this. Sometimes you smile at another person and they don't smile back. And you're left with great feelings of rejection and devastation. Why didn't they smile back at me? Is it their problem? Is it my problem? Is it something I did? Sometimes the friendly look we give to another person is not acknowledged, it's ignored. We feel insulted. 
we wonder what's wrong with this person. They're so rude, they're so impolite. Or maybe it's me. Sometimes our roommates change their bed, or they move out of the room, or someone changes their place in the meditation room. And we're sure it must be our fault. Something I did. You know, maybe I didn't wash my socks. Maybe it's my vibe. You know, maybe I've got bad vibes. They can't be around me. Something's really wrong here. What can I do to change my aura? We're not sure. We're just not sure ever. Really, what is going on? And what this hall of mirrors does for us is that it deprives us in a way of certainty. We can no longer tell who we are by how other people see us. We can no longer tell who we are by how other people respond to us or tell us about ourselves. And in this hall of mirrors, then, we see ourselves in many distorted ways. We see ourselves as being paranoid. We see ourselves as being judgmental. We see ourselves as being needy or as being defensive. All these different images and all these different descriptions arise about who we are. And they are reflected back to us in this mirror of silence. When we are left with just this silence, then the inner world really becomes a landscape in which I seek for certainty and reassurance because it is not being offered from outside of ourselves. And we see what happens when we listen and when we explore inwardly. Sometimes it's really quite amazing the degree of noise that we listen to. Sometimes we may even be filled with a sense of disbelief about how many thoughts it is possible to have. If you were to count the number of thoughts you've had since the beginning of this retreat, <laughs> it is amazing. It is truly amazing. Once someone said to me on a retreat, well, you know, my mind won't stop thinking. I'm not going to try and stop it. I'm just going to wait for it to stop. And ten days later, we're still waiting. We're still thinking. Still producing endless different thoughts. And sometimes we feel distressed by that. Sometimes it seems rather miraculous. And what we are aware of is that we don't actually invite those thoughts. We don't actually choose them. We're not actually consciously initiating them. It is not even how we want to be. We sit there obsessing and preoccupying and dwelling. I'm sure no one got up this morning and said, well, I have a good day of dwelling. You know, I really feel into a little preoccupation, a little obsession today. We don't invite it. We don't choose it. In some way, it seems like a kind of visitation from somewhere else. And we seem, and we're aware of that mind, fated in some way to be a kind of captive audience of a mind which is in love with itself, a mind which is in love with its labels and its descriptions. And how much silence do we experience in that when we listen inwardly? Sadly, it is often not a great deal. 
And we're aware also of how energy-consuming that process of endless busyness is. You come out of the city sometimes to talk about you know, how tired they are at the end of the day. My goodness, they're just sitting around. You know, <laughs> we're not doing anything. We're just sitting here, having a little walk in between and coming sitting down again. But at the end of the day, I'm so tired. I have to go to sleep. I'm hard enough. I'm exhausted. Why are we so exhausted? We see this is actually, this mind is really exhausting. This endless process consumes an enormous amount of energy. And we hear that meditation brings peace and serenity <laughs> and tranquility, and we're very sure it's somebody else's meditation that's been talking about, because it's not ours. What is going on in all this activity? What is this noise and this busyness and all of this thinking all about? It is not that it really makes any difference to anything. And when you think about the thoughts, you've had today. I mean, how many have really made any difference to anything at all? <laughs> I think I'd like to be different, or I'd like to get rid of this, or I'd like to have some of that, or I'd like to be a bit stiller, you know, or I'd like some peace, so you know, we've had, maybe had feelings of anxiety or guilt. How many of the thoughts have really made any difference to anything at all? Many of them really don't make much difference. So much of that busyness is simply the dance of I and the dance of fear. It is the busyness of I looking for certainty, looking for a refuge, looking for a sanctuary. And the sanctuary that I looked for is within the three areas of being able to say I am, I have, and I know. And those three areas are like building blocks that we would like to build a fortress out of. The eye longs for certainty. And certainty is represented in being able to say, I have, I am, and I know. We equate that certainty with happiness, and we equate it with protection. Now most of us, all of us probably have had really enough life experience that we have resigned ourselves to the fact that the outer world, the world around us, cannot offer us any certainty. Not really. It cannot offer us any real security. No matter how much we have, no matter how much we know, no matter how many credentials we have accumulated and assumed, in the world, still, it's a little bit like living in a jungle. We can lose it all. At any moment, we can lose it all. It can all dissolve. And we see, even in that pursuit in the world of wanting to have, wanting to know, wanting to become, after we get over the initial excitement of gaining things, or succeeding at things, or accumulating things, how easily we become bored. I become restless, or we become insecure again. This insight that we have about the lack of certainty in the world around us, it doesn't mean that we entirely relinquish our desire to control and to manipulate and consume the world. We find ourselves probably 
still making occasional brief excursions into these areas, you know, of what can I get, what can I know, what can I become. But we're not so convinced even of that possibility. We're aware on some level of that futility of looking for certainty outside of ourselves. But it's also apparent that what we have learned about the world around us, it doesn't always mean that we've learned it in relationship to the world within ourselves. That instead of searching for certainty in things or in objects, we find ourselves looking for that trinity of having and knowing and being something inwardly. That's why we have a busy mind. That is why we have all the movements towards things and the movements away from things. That's why we find ourselves involved in this process of constructing, of identifying and holding. That's why we find ourselves involved in this process of becoming. That the mind or the eye is longing for certainty. We come to this silence that we have here. And what we have in this environment, an environment of silence, we have a path, and we have ourselves, and we have an invitation to let go, to empty ourselves of knowing, to be still and to listen inwardly, and to trust, to trust that all the wisdom that we need to be free be free from fear, will emerge from that silence and from that listening. It's a very wonderful invitation. We should be overjoyed about it. Unfortunately for the I, that invitation to be still and just to listen, it's a recipe for disaster. Because it's not an invitation that offers us any certainty, any guarantees, or any credentials. So it's no wonder that we find ourselves struggling. Even noise does become desirable. You know, even thought and busyness does become desirable because it gives us something to do. We see how much anxiety this journey, consciously and unconsciously, provokes in us. We might find ourselves asking, you know, well, what, what really is frightening for us in this inner journey? What really is frightening for us in this invitation to be still? And the answer probably is that most of this journey is to some extent frightening for us. It's a, this journey, it is a journey of the spirit. It is a journey towards a profound and a mystical understanding and realization. This understanding is not something that we can measure in any way. An insight is not something that is often very visible to us. And the sense of I longs for the visible. It longs for the tangible. It longs for the created that it can possess that it can relate to and that it can define itself by. This journey offers us silence and we find ourselves craving for words and craving for descriptions and definitions. 
because these descriptions and these words are the marks by which we make experience familiar to us. This journey is about death, and it's about change, and it's about understanding. And there's no yardstick to measure that by. And I longs for yardsticks, longs for signposts. It longs for ways to measure our experience. Because without a signpost, without a yardstick, without a measurement, how do I even know how I'm doing? How do I know, actually, if I'm progressing? How do I know I'm changing? How do I know it's, it's worthwhile, all this effort, if I don't have some kind of neon headlight that says, wonderful? Even this path, we're told, it's only a vehicle. It's only a raft. It is something we're going to need to let go of. But it's just a form, not to be identified with. And but yet we see ourselves again and again how we long and desire to make an institution out of this vehicle. How we long to, you know, how we would like to have a really well-defined path, you know, with marks on it, like a map, you know, that you go here and there and you've been there and you don't have to go back. How we would long to make an institution out of it. To read you a story about the guru's cat. When the guru sat down to worship each evening, the ashram cat would get in the way and distract the worshippers. So the guru ordered that the cat be tied up during the evening worship. After the guru died, the cat continued to be tied up during the evening worship. And when the cat expired, another cat was brought to the ashram so that it could be duly tied up during evening worship. (laughs) Centuries later, books were written by the guru's scholarly disciples on the deep religious significance of tying up a cat while, re- while worship is performed. <laughs> In many ways, <coughs> we find ourselves tying up our own cats. When we hold on to the last sitting and said, this is how it's supposed to be, or this is a good one, or even that was a bad one, when we construct an image of how we should be, when we hold on to a signpost or to an experience, we're tying up our cat again and again and again. We're making out an institution. When we create a goal, no matter how altruistic and wonderful that goal is, we're still tying up our cat. When we're trying to create certainty, Even when we're engaged in a great deal of doing to get rid of the I, which appears to be such a problem to us, we are creating a reality, which is still tying up our cat. We're creating a reality, a substantial entity, out of something which is not substantial. Even when we try to understand the I, to get hold of it, we're creating a reality out of something which is unsubstantial. And this is what identification, and this is what grasping does. It creates a static and a frozen center out of something which is a constantly fluid and a changing process that becomes a reality for us if we believe in 
because we want to believe in it desperately. We want to believe there is something real about I. You know that children's story about the emperor and his clothes? You know the emperor who is really vain and you know really always wanted to impress everybody by how handsome he was and how wonderful he looked and what a fantastic appearance he made. So he would always have constantly new clothes made from him and have these parades. And one day these, these tricksters came into the palace and they told him he would, they would make him the most beautiful clothes anyone had ever seen. But they said that the material was so fine that only a wise person could see it. And then they held out nothing in front of him. And they said, look, isn't it wonderful? It's such gold. It's the most beautiful material in the world. Only a really wise person can see this. And the emperor said, yes, fantastic stuff. You know, make me a suit of clothes out of that. You know, he got all his chancellors in and the best people in the government. And he told them, only really wise people can see how wonderful this is. You know, and they said, oh yes, it's absolutely fantastic, most beautiful cloth I've ever seen. I can't wait to see your outfit. So the tailors, you know, these tricksters, sewed in these clothes. And the emperor was so proud, you know, and then the emperor tried it on. They said, look at yourself in the mirror, you look fine figure of a man. And so he posed in front of the mirror, he was said, absolutely, they said, you know, I look absolutely terrific, you look so fine. And the emperor said, I must have a parade. So all, everybody can see how wonderful I look. You know, of course, only the wise people will really appreciate how wonderful I look. And of course, this was told to all the commoners, you know, wise people are going to see how wonderful the emperor looks. So the emperor came out naked, of course, parading down the street, holding up these invisible clothes, and everybody agreed and applauded, you know, wonderful, yes, you look fine. Until one little boy said, the emperor has got no clothes on. <laughs> and the whole thing dissolved. So we would like also to create that kind of substantiality. I would like to believe who in who I would like to be. I would like to become. I think it is clear to us in our lives and in our meditation that grasping and identification is actually a painful experience. It creates pain, pain in the mind, pain in the body, pain everywhere. There's actually a painful experience. No matter how gross or how subtle clinging is, its inevitable offspring is pain. We know this. We don't need an expert to tell us this. We experience it hour by hour, day by day. Our whole life experience tells us this. The difficulty is, of course, is that I simply don't want to believe it. I don't want to believe that grasping is painful. In a very distorted way, this that I perceives pain as pleasure. Even though we have all endlessly experienced many times in our lives and with much sadness, loss and separation and failure and disappointed expectations and disillusionment. It would not be a bad idea for us to ask ourselves, how much have I actually learned from this? Sometimes we even perceive the recovery from those experiences which were painful as being made possible through more grasping, grasping hold onto something else. 
is like a moth going to a candle flame. Even though its wings get singed, the moment it gets up again, it's flying back, looking for the next flame. Well, it's like a kind of punch-drunk boxer that keeps getting knocked down the moment it gets up, comes up swinging, looking for something else to grab hold of. Why is that? Why is it that we perceive, do not believe that grasping is painful? Or why do we equate grasping with pleasure? Certainly that I equate pleasure with certainty and security, and certainty and security being made possible through grasping and identification. It may be difficult for us to accept, but it is possible that I actually can't learn this lesson, that this is not true. I can't. I can't learn the lesson that grasping does not equate pleasure, but creates pain. It may be possible that I can't learn the lesson that security and certainty that is dependent upon grasping identification is not pleasure but pain. Because to believe this is actually to leave nothing for I to do. Where would I be if I wasn't grasping hold of something? When I'm not involved in a quest, to have or to become or to know something, it would actually be very difficult to find I. It may well be impossible. It's clearly not just a black and white situation. We do learn from our life experience. We're not so easily deceived by desire, by, by craving. And so we experience less pain. We're not so easily swept away by um, desire to control, by desire to manipulate. So we have in our lives more spaciousness. Because we inwardly develop more detachment and more happiness, we don't rely so heavily upon the fulfillment of desire for happiness. We do develop equanimity. We do develop spaciousness and compassion. So we're not so easily ensnared by judgment, by images, by resistances. All of these changes, we can measure them. We can see those changes in ourselves, and we can see them in our lives. We can see that there's a certain learning that brings transformation inwardly, and it brings it outwardly. But I feel to truly understand silence, to really be at home and at ease in silence, we really need to understand very clearly the basic language of I. And it is basic. It has a very elementary vocabulary, even though it gets lost in endless kind of dressing up. The language of I is the language of pleasure and the language of pain, and this is what deceives us. Pleasure supports I, pain threatens I. These two actualities fuel the dance of I. They create busyness and noise and separation. I misnames pleasure as happiness, mistakes pleasure as being happiness. And that basic mistake is the source of most of the pain we experience in our lives. I retreat from pain to 
aversion, to suppression, to distraction, to avoidance. And that movement consumes energy. I seeks for a solution to pain through contact with that which is more pleasant. We can reflect on that. We see that in our experience in a retreat. You know, a little boredom, here comes the fantasy. Difficult mental state? Well, here's something nice to distract myself with. You know, we see it again and again, this swing in the mind away from and towards, based on the painful and based upon the pleasant and based upon grasping. Pleasure is just pleasure. It is not happiness. And no lasting happiness can actually be found in the realm of I have, I know, or have become. And this is the only territory the I can travel. Just those three areas. It's the only territory the I can travel. The Buddha said that this path is the path of happiness leading to the highest happiness. And that the highest happiness is peace. And peace actually has nothing at all to do with the presence or the absence of the pleasant or the unpleasant. It has nothing to do with it. Peace is in non-clinging, in non-grasping. Only in the cessation of grasping do we cease to be conditioned by what we grasp hold of. Very simple. Only in the cessation of grasping do we cease to be conditioned by what we grasp hold of. Do we cease to be molded by the thoughts, the feelings, the mental states, the objects, by everything that is conditioned? To be conditioned, we have to grasp hold of the conditions. They are mutually interdependent. What we are learning to do in this meditation and learning to understand is how to cultivate a non-dwelling mind, a consciousness that lingers nowhere and that dwells upon nothing. And in lingering nowhere and in dwelling upon nothing, seeking not for certainty in anything, we're learning really how to strip ourselves of knowing, of having and becoming. This is the only place where we can find the highest happiness and the deepest peace. Non-dwelling is the greatest art of the spiritual life. To dwell upon nothing. I'd like to share with you something with Buddha scholars and speaking, students speaking to his teacher. The question is, what should the mind dwell upon? And the answer, it should dwell upon non-dwelling. And what is this non-dwelling? It means not having the mind dwell upon anything whatsoever. But what does that mean? Dwelling upon nothing means that the mind doesn't remain with good or evil. Not with being or non-being, inside or outside, emptiness or non-emptiness concentration or distraction. This dwelling upon nothing is the state in which it should dwell. Those who attain it are said to have non-dwelling minds. In other words, they have Buddha minds. 
cultivating that Buddha mind, cultivating that non-dwelling mind. It's certainly not a point we arrive at at the end of the path. Non-dwelling is the path. It is the journey. In every thought, in every sound, in every sight, in every feeling. And non-dwelling is in itself silence. It is the silence embracing the silence of awareness. The silence of great stillness. It's not opposite to movement, it's not contrary to movement, it embraces movement, it's not conditioned by movement. The silence is not dependent upon movement. It is silent in the absence of movement. The non-dwelling is the vehicle of understanding that silence. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings abide in silence. Just two minutes sitting together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.